All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Now we've got Rachel Cooperman on the show today. Who, who's Rachel? Yes, Rachel Cooperman is a neurologist. She is also the founder and CEO of a company by the name of Eyes. She has uh, over 10 years of experience directing the clinical epilepsy pediatrics uh, research program at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. Uh, she took some of, uh, I think, what she learned about um, some of the gaps in treating epilepsy patients and has since uh, left her position there to be an entrepreneur and to build eyes uh, to try to come up with new treatment options for patients with epilepsy. So I'm incredibly excited to talk to Rachel about her, her personal experience leaving academic medicine and, and leaving her role as a clinician to become an entrepreneur and to develop some what sounds like really game-changing technology in the, uh, in the epilepsy space. What problem is Eyes trying to solve? So Eyes has developed a uh, basically it's an, it's a AI-based clinical software program that is able to track eye movements of patients with epilepsy. So today, the existing treatment paradigm is that obviously large seizures are are obvious, but there's a lot of patients that have much more subtle seizures, uh, known as uh, absence seizures that are much more hard to detect, largely go undetected. Uh, and so Eyes is, has come up with a, a, an algorithm and a, a sort of a software program that uses uh, subtle eye movements to actually detect those types of seizures. And the goal of all of this is to give clinicians more data to then be able to um, refine not only the, the specific medication that is given to patients, but also the dose of that medication. Because as we know, all, all, all medications have side effects as well. Um, and so I, I'm really excited to learn a little more about the technology, learn where it is in, in terms of devel development. Um, you know, j just a little background for, for, for listeners, you know, epilepsy in the U.S. is, is, is huge. I think it's three, almost 3.5 million people are diagnosed with epilepsy uh, annually. Uh, it affects one in 26 people. So th this, is, this is a major, uh, major disease. And I think ICE is doing something really, uh, really potentially transformative here. And how challenging is it for a doctor to get the right drug and the right 
dose to, to a patient. Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk to Rachel about. I mean, she, ha- she has a wealth of experience in this space. And, you know, my sense is that it's incredibly challenging. It's, it's largely done uh, in, in a trial and error fashion today. But, you know, I'm going to ask Rachel that question. But my sense is that that is one of the major reasons why she left uh, her position at UCS, UCSF Benioff to start eyes is to try to solve this, this critical problem. Well, if you're ready. I'm ready, Danny. Let's do it. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I'm incredibly excited to have you on the show today. Great. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Today, we are going to talk about epilepsy, the challenges managing the condition, uh, ISA's seizure detection platform, which is designed to improve outcomes. But before we dive into that, why don't we start with epilepsy itself? Uh, many listeners probably have a notion of what epilepsy is, but what happens when a person with epilepsy has a seizure? Yeah, so um, epilepsy is actually just a definition, um, and what it means is having recurring seizures um, without clear provocation. So, for example, if someone has um, diabetes and their sugar drops and they have a seizure, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have epilepsy. So in order to have epilepsy, you have to have near no clear cause for the seizure um, that can explain it at the time. So um, in the typical diagnosis is having two or more unprovoked seizures. And the interesting thing is, is that um, about 10% of people will have a seizure in their lifetime. So it's quite common. It's just that we don't talk about it a whole lot. Interesting. And is there a, a typical age that epilepsy is, is diagnosed? So there's two peaks. The first is um, early childhood, and then the second is in the elderly. Um, and the frequency is actually as about one in 26 in the United States. Oh, wow. So actually pretty, pretty common. Um, and then in, in terms of uh, the, the condition itself, how heterogeneous is epilepsy? Is it, is it fairly predictable from patient to patient, or is there a wide variance um, in terms of frequency, intensity of seizures, ability to treat and, and prevent seizures? You know, so like many diseases of the brain, um, epilepsy is almost a symptom of a disease. So what that means is that it's epilepsy doesn't define the cause. It just means that you have recurrent seizures. So someone could have recurrent seizures because they have an underlying genetic syndrome. They could have recurrent seizures because they've suffered a head injury. They could have recurrent seizures um, because they had a stroke when they were elderly, for example. So there's a whole host of different etiologies that can cause seizures. Um, and one of the things that the physician has to do when someone presents with seizures is figure out if there is a cause that they can identify. That being said, even um, in, uh, you know, with the most advanced imaging systems and workups, about 50% of the time, the physician cannot identify a cause um, for epilepsy. Uh, So it is a wide variety of different um, causes. And then the different causes come with different um, natural histories. So that's one of the challenges is that as a physician, you know kind of as a group how people do, but you don't know how the patient in front of you is going to do. So for example, we know that um, the more frequent your seizures are when you present, the more likelihood that medicines aren't going to work very well for you. Um, so that's an association. 
um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, you know true for everybody sitting in front of you. Um, and so there's a lot of different factors that have been identified through clinical research, and you can get a, a rough picture of how somebody's going to do, but you don't know 100%. Um, the new kind of field of genetic testing has really taken off, um, and we can now have a better idea if we can identify a genetic cause, what the natural history is going to be. But even then, there's a wide variety of uh, outcomes. And that, that's a really interesting point. So why don't we dive into that a little bit? And so does the underlying cause of um, epilepsy and of the seizures dictate how you, what you prescribe um, in terms of treatment options? And, and then actually that's, that kind of dovetails into what are current treatment options uh, as, as well? Yeah, so um, we know that certain genetic epilepsies respond better to certain medications. Um, so for example... Uh, there's a rare epilepsy syndrome um, that's caused by a sodium channel mutation called DRAVE, and there's a very specific profile of medications that um, people who have that disorder are more likely to respond to. Um, I would say that's not that common where we know exactly which medicines people are going to respond to or aren't going to respond to. In general, what physicians have is um, 26 medicines, roughly. And then they can say, okay, well, this person's epilepsy is a generalized epilepsy, so I'm going to narrow it down to these, you know, five to ten medicines that we know work best. And in a few cases, we may know which medicine works best. Like, for example, in absence epilepsy, we know that ethosuximide has the greatest likelihood of stopping the seizures with the least amount of side effects. And it's one of the few places where we have class one evidence saying, try this drug first. But most epilepsies, we don't have that kind of evidence. So the doctor goes on what their experience has been and what the literature tells them is most likely the best choice. Um, it also depends on the patient. So for example, if you have somebody uh, that's a young woman who's thinking about pregnancy, you want to avoid drugs that are known to cause problems with a developing fetus. So that would be another way that a doctor would pick a medicine would be to avoid certain medicines that have known side effects that wouldn't be tolerated. So Rachel, then it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like some of how treatments are prescribed is sort of by trial and error uh, at, at this stage of the game. What, what, what are, if that is indeed the case, what, what are the consequences of this to, to patients, for example, or to families or to the healthcare system in general? So the important thing to remember is that the outcome of epilepsy treatment is to stop seizures. So when doctors are unsure of the best medicine for a specific patient, um, then they have to trial through the medicine and then trial up the different doses. Um, and then they have to wait for the family um, or the patient to provide feedback on how the medication is doing. So you can imagine that if Families are unsure if there was a seizure or not. Um, so we know that even in the best case scenario, 50% of seizures are missed. Um, that what that leaves clinicians and families with is a very hard time figuring out, am I dosing this medicine appropriately? Um, and pharmaceutical companies have that same problem because they have to show that medicines decrease seizure burden by at least 50% to be approved. So the big problem boils down to yes, the doctor is taking the best information that they have and using that information, but they're still guessing. Um, and then they're waiting for this feedback from families, which may or may not 
be as accurate as one would like. So it can slow down the process and it can lead to this cycle of overdosing, meaning that um, the family or excuse me, the patient is experiencing side effects because the dose of the medicine is too high, um, but they may be seizure free. Um, and this can lead to poor quality of life or they could be underdosing, meaning that there's ongoing seizure activity um, because there's not enough medicine being given. And, and Rachel, I know you experienced some of these challenges firsthand. And, and before we dive into the technology uh, that ISIS developed, I, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners uh, to provide some, some of your background um, and how you came up with the ISIS technology that you're now working on, um, given your experience treating a variety of different um, uh, you know, patients with, uh, with epilepsy. Yeah. So, you know, I always think of this one family, um, this, their daughter who was about five or six at the time of her diagnosis, um, she had a diagnosis of absence epilepsy and her seizures were very brief on the order of five to 10 seconds each. And she would stop and have this kind of glazed over appearance um, and blink really quickly and then would return to normal. So her parents were both attorneys and we had a long conversation about the risk benefit of medications and starting her on medicines and um, ultimately started her on medications. And her parents came back to the first appointment and I said, okay, great, how are things going? And they looked at me kind of perplexed. They're like, well, she's in school all day. The teachers don't recognize the seizures. We're at home with her for a couple of hours before she goes to bed. And then we don't know what happens at night. So maybe they're a little better, we're not sure. And that, you know, I think kind of hit it home. Like here you have, a family that's trying to do the best by their child that has agreed to put them on a medicine um, with the goal of improving their quality of life and preventing injury from seizures. And we don't have the information that we need to figure out if this treatment is working. And that's when, you know, it just kind of hit home like, oh my goodness, am I going to make this kid come into the hospital so I can count her seizures so I can figure out if, I need to go up on the medicines. Um, and uh, there's no other specialty I can think of in medicine where you would have to bring somebody into the hospital just to figure out if they're doing better. Um, so that ultimately led uh, for me to do more research in the space to figure out how we could improve our understanding of how our treatments are progressing and affecting the people that we care for. And Rachel, I want to I want to dive into one nuance here because this is this is critical, and I, I think your story highlights it perfectly. But I just want to be clear for our listeners: you mentioned uh, absence epilepsy, and I think for our listeners, could you just explain what that is and how that differs from the epilepsy that a lot of us sort of imagine, where seizures are, are sort of very obvious um, and and are you know certainly much more visible than I think in the case that you had just described. Yeah, so um, most people think of uh, seizures as these big events where people fall to the ground and shake. Um, but the reality is, is that's only a small percentage of the total seizures. It makes up less than 20%. And the bulk of seizures are either non-convulsive, mean, meaning that there's no shaking, or minimally convulsive, um, meaning that there might be some movements, um, but not uh, very prominent. So um, the big problem is, is that when you have a child who has a very subtle seizure type, um, it can be modified also by treatment. So whereas pre-treatment, 
the child might have these obvious 10 second events, which are brief um, and can be missed, but at least there's a clear appearance to them. But then as treatment progresses, the events could become less frequent um, and they could become even more subtle, making it harder for the family to identify it. For the bulk of people with epilepsy who have what are called non-convulsive seizures, um, the seizures can consist of things like um, a strange appearance to their eyes, like they're glazed over, and then picking movements or chewing movements um, and unresponsiveness. And that can be really confusing for observers to figure out if someone is actually having a seizure or it's normal behavior, particularly if they're not experienced with seeing them before. So for example, a teacher may not be able to identify uh, an event as a seizure because they've just never seen it and aren't looking for it. Okay, so I think this is a great segue then into the, the technology that you're developing at EYES, which is really technology for passive or remote monitoring for patients with epilepsy. Could you describe a little bit about uh, the, the goal of the technology, what you're trying to ach achieve through the technology, and then the, the, the different components, sort of nuts and bolts of the technology itself? Um, yeah, so the technology is really based upon the idea that eye movements are a window into brain activity. So um, our brain is wired basically to focus, for example, on what we're thinking about. So there's a tremendous amount of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology dedicated to the eye movement circuitry. And what that means is if we can measure the eye movements accurately, then we can understand better what's going on in the circuits of the brain. And we know that seizures alter the circuitry of the brain by making a significant part of the brain really too excited um, and other parts of the brain um, kind of quiet down. And um, it's been known for many years that people who lose consciousness have this, keep their eyes open and have this funny glazed over appearance. And so we basically set out to take that clinical observation and turn it into a time series of numbers by using leveraging existing eye tracking technology and developing algorithms to be able to identify those events. Um, and that's really the concept behind the passive measurement of consciousness that we're starting with. And we're starting with Absence Epilepsy because there's really no tools out there to help kids who have this disorder. Um, and it's really hard to measure. And the kids who have it have a lot of events, which lets us gather a tremendous amount of data really quickly. So that's really one end of understanding the seizure burden. But the other important aspect is understanding the side effects. And the way seizure medicines work is that they try to quiet the brain down to make it less excitable. And when you quiet the brain down, what you're also doing is quieting all the normal activities of the brain down. And so that's why people who take seizure medicines don't necessarily feel great. They feel like, hey, I'm not thinking as quickly as I was thinking before. I feel drowsy. And that's a direct side effect of the medication's action on the brain. And so our goal is also not just to measure the seizures, but also to measure the side effects so that we can develop a dose response curve and help understand, oh, as a clinician, I put my patient on this dose of medicine and look, the seizures are getting better, but oh goodness, the side effects are clearly not going to be tolerable or vice versa. You know, the seizures are getting better and the side effects aren't significant. Let's keep going. Um, so that a physician can then make appropriate decisions instead of sitting down with the family and 
having the family provide information that they just aren't equipped to provide. So then it sounds like the, the, the ultimate goal of the technology is through capturing a wealth of data that clinicians will be able to make more informed treatment decisions, both in terms of the type of medication and, and dosing of that medication to properly treat uh, an individual patient's seizures. Is, is it, am, am I understanding that correctly? Exactly. So the idea would be that we could get someone to the correct dose where they have the best possible seizure control with the minimum side effects as quickly as possible. Um, and for about one third of people who don't respond to medications to move them to um, other treatments that may be more invasive, but they'd be more likely to benefit from as opposed to medications. So really to speed up the process, um, and on average, it takes 18 years for a patient with um, medicine, uh, medication refractory epilepsy, so they don't respond to medicines, to get to a more definitive treatment like surgery. And our goal really is to cut that by at least half. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 18 years, that, that's a, a tremendously long time. So it sounds like there, there is a, a dire need for, for this type of technology. Can you um, tell our listeners a little bit about where you are in the stage of development, what's been done to validate the technology to date? Yeah. So um, there is extensive literature to date about um, kind of the subjective description of what happens for people. So um, we, uh, when I was at UCSF, we did a, um, proof of concept study where we were able to show that compared to EEG, we could use eye movements to detect seizures um, and use that to file for our patent. Um, then uh, since I left UCSF, we have um, met with the FDA um, about our clinical uh, study protocol um, and have um, moved forward with a multi-center trial. Um, we're running our study at four sites, um, UCSF, um, Children's Hospital Orange County, UC San Diego, um, Rady Children's, and Wake Forest. Um, it's also listed on clinicaltrials.gov if you're interested in learning more about it. It's called the DAISY Clinical Study. So the purpose of the study really is to enroll a lot of children um, and adults who have absence epilepsy and to compare their eye movements to EEG um, which is considered the gold standard, and um, to take that information to refine the algorithm um, before we proceed on with the validation study, hopefully um, early next year, where we will confirm the sensitivity and specificity of our algorithm um, as we move towards FDA clearance. And I think that, that brings up a good point. Could you talk a little bit about the FDA approval or, or regulatory pathway for this type of uh, device? Yeah, so the FDA um, was very wise, I would say, um, and uh, they basically set up a whole category for non-EEG-based physiologic seizure detectors. Um, there are two FDA-approved devices in that category already, um, and they both um, are uh, developed to detect uh, the shaking movements of convulsive seizures. Um, so that is the category that our device falls under. Um, it's considered software as a medical device. We are not building the eye tracking hardware as there's many companies out there that have uh, significant expertise in eye tracking. And we will be uh, utilizing their technology with our algorithms living in the cloud um, and using their inputs. 
Um, and then um, we will uh, basically produce a report um, that is regulated by the FDA. Got it. And then just in terms of obviously, you know, c- clinical trials um, are not exactly predictable, but if everything were to go generally according to plan, when would this device be available generally for patients and for clinicians to be able to, to use the device for their patients? So the goal is to have the device um, on the market by Q1 2023, um, if everything continues according to plan without any new worldwide pandemics. <laughs> yeah, some of these things are obviously very unpredictable and uh, out of your control. Um, Rachel, I did want to uh, circle back to uh, a, a comment that you made. And I, I think, you know, we have a lot of both cl- clinicians and entrepreneurs who listen to the show um, and I want to dive into sort of, I guess, your personal experience. I mean, you, you ran the clinical epilepsy you know, research program at UCSF uh, Benioff Children's Hospital for, for many years. You decided to sort of take the leap and uh, and become an entrepreneur and start eyes to develop this technology. Could you talk a little bit about your thought process and experience going from, um, you know, from being a you know, practicing neurologist to sort of making the transition to being, you know, essentially a full-time entrepreneur to, to build out the company and the technology? Yeah, so um, it's a very humbling experience, I would say. So, you know, I ran the PEDS epilepsy program in Oakland and um, I was 10 years in and, you know, 10 years into doing something, you get quite good at it. Um, you know, not that there's nothing to improve, but, you know, you're very comfortable in your role as an expert. Um, so when that's really great, um, you know, there are many challenges in caring for people with epilepsy and medicine has its own challenges. Um, but ultimately I actually decided I was ready for a new adventure. Um, and that was part of what led me to start the company was this, was my desire for personal growth. Um, and continued learning. The second component was that I really felt like I wanted to change the lives of more people than I could do one-on-one as a clinician. Um, And it really felt like in order to disseminate something completely novel, it wasn't enough to publish it in the literature, but you really had to ultimately turn it into a product that somebody could use. Um, And uh, that that basically led me to take the jump. Um, it is a very lonely thing to leave academic clinical medicine, um, and go do something totally different. Um, I think that, um, if I look back on my career, there was always a, uh, when I was in medical school, I'll take a step back. When I was in medical school, there was this, um, belief that, um, industry and clinicians shouldn't interact because, for example, pharmaceutical companies who take clinicians out to dinner influence um, either consciously or subconsciously the clinician's behavior and that clinicians need to be um, unbiased in their choices and to stay away from industry. So when I was uh, developing my career, I really stayed fairly far away from industry because of that, you know, medical upbringing, so to speak. So to take the leap and say, okay, I'm going to go to industry um, to build my own industry, uh, you know, was a, there was a mental barrier there on top of just the, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing in this yet. 
um, <laughs> barrier as well. So, you know, what I have to say is that the Bay Area is an amazing place to start a business. There's tons of mentorship. The National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health are really geared towards helping clinicians, uh, scientists step out and build something. And I've really been able to take advantage of that mentorship um, to learn a tremendous amount. Um, and also through my co-founders. I mean, my co-founder, um, Parth's background in medical devices um, has really taught me a tremendous amount. And my other co-founders, JIT background in computation um, has reminded me of my days as a physics undergraduate student um, to, you know, really remember and um, think about integrating these into the product. I mean, it, it's um, I, in many ways what you're describing is, you know, what, what we often find is, you know, it, it takes a village to sort of help a company grow and mature and, and scale. And, you know, leaving, you know, a, a, a steady job that you had been at for 10 years to take, take a leap of faith to, to start a company to develop something that you really believe in, I think, you know, um, is, is definitely takes a lot of courage. So I certainly applaud your efforts there. Um, you know, w w w one thing that, that sort of comes to mind is, you know, as you're, as you're building, as you're scaling the company, right, you're, you're developing new skill sets that you didn't have in academia. You know, a lot of that is around the commercialization of technology. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, of course, the, you know, the ac you know, academic medicine, you know, academic research has a critical role in developing therapies and in treating patients. Right. Nonprofit organizations, disease foundations have a critical role in funding early stage research. But nothing is really going to get to the patient without the commercial sector. Right. I, as far as I know, there's never been a drug, for example, that has reached patients that has not been developed and marketed by a pharma or biotech company. So there is a critical role that industry plays. As you thought about, um, you know, building eyes. Um, you know, I know you're you're currently now under undergoing a uh, regulation crowdfunding offering with with Biverge. We're we're proud to be partners there. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about financing the company, um, building the company, um, the types of investors that you're looking for, uh, and then also as you thought about launching the regulation crowdfunding offering, could you talk about what was attractive to that compared to perhaps some of the more traditional, you know venture or sort of angel avenues that, that you've thought about and, and perhaps you're pursuing both in parallel, but we'd love to understand a little bit about your thought process there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we basically divided the fundraising into non-dilutive funding, such as uh, the National Institutes of Health um, and other grant opportunities um, versus dilutive funding. Um, and uh, we've been lucky enough to um, have an SBIR phase one and have uh, from the National Institutes for Neurological Disorders um, and uh, have been able to fund our clinical studies um, partially based on that funding um, with hope for future applications and more funding as our product continues to develop. Um, in terms of the dilutive funding, um, we really focused on um, developing partnerships um, with companies who um, have a strong interest in this space. So for example, our biggest investor is UCB Pharma. They're also one of the uh, largest epilepsy drug developers in the space. Um, and it's a great source of validation for us, but it's also wonderful to um, talk with partners like that about developing future products together as well. Um, we've also been fortunate to have investors from angel groups, um, such as Health Tech Capital, 
um, and CG angels, as well as plug and play, which has provided a um, wealth of introductions um, and uh, visibility. So um, that was one component of it. The second is really that um, we want to engage with people who have epilepsy as we're, we want to take this journey together. And the goal of crowdfunding really is to bring in the voices of the people who are going to benefit um, or ultimately use this product. Um, and that's what we're excited about when it comes to the crowdfunding aspect um, is really bringing the community along on the journey um, and hearing their input. And, and I think that's a critical um, a critical point, right? And that is a huge differentiator for, for crowdfunding versus more traditional avenues of financing is you can actually engage your community. You can engage with patients. You can engage with, you know, your constituents who who already care about the, the d- disease that you're you're working on, uh, working on fighting and developing technology for. So um, I, I, I'm incredibly excited for, for the campaign and the offering. Rachel, um, if folks want to learn more about eyes or if they want to get in contact with you, learn more about the, the crowdfunding campaign, how, how can folks uh, learn more about what you're doing? So uh, you can certainly visit our website. Um, it's E-Y-S-Z-L-A-B.com. And then another great way is to follow us on LinkedIn. Um, we post our um, uh, steps as we move forward and then um, really like engaging with people there as well. And then the BioVerge portal is um, another great place to learn about the offering um, and directly invest. Rachel, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate your time and for a a really interesting and thorough discussion. Um, Thanks so much. Thank you. So what do you think, Neil? I thought that was a a really um, uh, incredible discussion with Rachel. Uh, I, I think one of the key takeaways for me is that uh, you know, Eyes is developing a solution that by using patients' eye movements, doctors can uh, potentially get the data they need to make more informed treatment decisions, uh, both in terms of, you know, medication type and dosage of medication, which, you know, it sounds like could have a profound impact on, on patients' lives. Uh, and it sounds like there is a, a critical need from that, uh, or a critical need for that, excuse me, in the epilepsy community these days. It's astounding to me to think it can take 18 years to get medication right in patients. In the absence of this type of data getting treatments right, is it, is it just a matter of trial and error? That's what it sounds like. I mean, according to, to Rachel, and you heard our discussion, it, it does seem like a lot of, uh, you know, pers- you know the, the prescriptions and dosing for patients is trial and error. Let's, let's, let's try medication and see what it does. Let's try a dose, see what it does, and, and have patients come back and report the outcomes. But the, the issue that Eyes is trying to solve is it's, it's relatively easy to detect large seizures, or as, as you heard Rachel talk about, you know, the large seizures are what we all think about when we think about epilepsy, someone falling on the floor, convulsing, you know, eyes rolling back. But in fact, a large percentage of seizures are not that way at all and are very subtle and very minor. And it's, it sounds like it's critical to get those correct in order to fine tune the dosing. And that's what's really going to have a major effect on patients and, 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 and outcomes. What do you see as the biggest challenge for the company? You know, I, you know, th- obviously the company is still early stage. So you ta- we heard Rachel talk a little bit about some of the early validation they have. You know, they need to perform larger validation studies uh, to validate the technology before going to the FDA for, for approval. 
Um, so obviously there's always a, a lot of clinical risk. I think Rachel has done a really nice job in terms of, you know, de-risking the technology as much as possible. But again, they're still early stage. And I, I think like all startup companies, uh, it, it, in, in some sense, it, it does take a, a village to ensure that technology is brought to market. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I asked Rachel, and I think she did a really nice job of, of explaining, is how she thought about financing the company. Right. So early on, and I think this is a great model, in fact, for, for others to follow. And, 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 you know, one that we often look for when we're making investments at Bioverge is, you know, has the company received non-dilutive grant funding? Uh, and that can come from a variety of different uh, sources. It could be the NIH. It could be the NSF. It could be disease foundations, right? There's a whole host of options out there for non-dilutive funding. That's a great way to finance in a non-dilutive fashion, early stage research. Uh, then, of course, moving to, you know, whether it's individual angel investors or angel groups, uh, one of the things that Eyes was successful at, which is which is really nice to see, is you know strategic funding from strategic partners. You know that's a huge point of validation for the technology and for the company. Uh, you heard Rachel talk a little bit about the the the, the um, regulation crowdfunding offering and the benefits of of going out to engage the community and allow the community to invest in the offering. This is a relatively novel path for healthcare for biotech uh, companies to follow. Um, and you know now that uh, you can raise up to $5 million under a rake CF offering, I think it's going to become more commonplace exactly for the reason that Rachel described, is engaging the community. I think that's going to be critical uh, to helping build these types of companies going forward. So you know, there's a whole host of challenges from, from the, the, the scientific side in terms of validation, but then, of course, from, from the, the business side of things and, and financing the technology. But it sounds like Rachel has, has done a really nice job with all these things. So I, for one, will, will be really excited to see how this technology is is um, continued to be developed and some of the clinical results that they're they're going to get here over the next um, you know twelve to eighteen months. What do you think this technology says more broadly about the potential for digital health to be used to improve patient outcomes? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think that this is a, a a great example of how technology can be implemented to try to solve fundamental problems in healthcare. Um, and so if you think about what Eyes is building, it, it, it really is a technology solution. And the technology solution is being applied to, in this case, you know, help more accurately diagnose and, and treat patients with epilepsy. Um, but it, but it, is, it is essentially a software package and algorithm that they've developed. So I think this is, this is a great example of how bringing in a suite of, of technology can help, uh, can help clinicians uh, make more informed uh, decisions when it comes to treating patients, uh, clearly how this can benefit patients. So I think this is, you know, a, a great, you know, digital health or digital therapeutic uh, application of, uh, of, of software. And I, I think we're going to start seeing more of these types of applications uh, in, in the future. And this is, this is one that I'm particularly excited about. Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast 
is provided courtesy of the Joan Levine Collective.